Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from UK Pillar 2 updates to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. The Pillar 2 engine from PwC is a game changer for Pillar 2 modeling, provision, and compliance calculations. Built on a graph system utilizing over 20 years of international tax technology, this centralized rules engine is built by a team of Pillar 2 tax experts from around the globe. PwC's Pillar 2 engine is currently available as a service and will be licensable in July 2024. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're at PwC's Global Tax Symposium Europe 2023 in Rome, Italy, where I'm excited to have Matt Ryan back on the podcast. Matt is a London-based international tax partner and leads PwC's UK Pillar 2 Ready team. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks very much, Doug. It's great to be back again. We're covering the UK, not in the UK. Again. That's, that's fine. I invite you, invite you to come back. I think this might be, Matt, the, either the fourth or fifth time. I think it might be this is the fourth time because I think we did one in yep, D.C. That's right. Um, we did last year in Barcelona. I'm blanking maybe when we did the other one. Oh, in Madrid. Um, and so I think this is number four. So you're almost a member. There's only two others in the Five Timers Club. So okay. that's verified. Oh, wow. I'm shooting at the table. You, this you, is good. You really I are. <laughs> Um, so it's great to have you back on. Um, what, lots to talk about from a UK Pillar mm-hmm. 2 perspective. But you know, Matt, I like to start the podcast with a non-tax topic. And you've been on this podcast many times before and educated our listeners on the UK parliamentary system during the prior merry-go-round of prime ministers a couple years back. It doesn't really feel like that long ago. But recently in the news, we've learned of David Cameron's return to mm-hmm. UK government. And to remind listeners, Mr. Cameron is the former prime minister and the leader who initiated the Brexit vote. Um, what does his return mean, Matt, for our non-UK listeners that continue to be intrigued by UK politics? Sure. I'll, I'll come to that in a second, Doug. But I think I have to pick up on your your intro and the fact that you said I was educating people, I may cause people to fact check what I've said and in the process that they're, they're educated, but, but let me generous. have a go at this one. I know I you're being, being generous. generous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do find this, it's the hardest, the hardest section in the, in the podcast. <laughs> so yeah, David Cameron, I, it's fair to say that nobody was expecting that. It was kept under wraps and not leaked to, to the press. And so what's his role? His role, he's coming back as foreign secretary, um, and no, he's not a serving MP, but there's precedent for this before. He's been appointed into the House of Lords. A number of previously serving prime ministers get appointed into the House of Lords, so that's not new. And yet he's undertaken the role of foreign secretary. And so I think it's it's good news for the stability of the UK, the UK's ability to to influence affairs internationally, where you have an ex-prime minister of standing coming in to do that role. And probably from his perspective, I don't think he was expecting that his time would be cut as short as it was. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he pushed the Brexit vote, expecting to... Um, the vote to have been remained, but as we know, it wasn't. And as a consequence, he, he resigned from frontline politics. So, yeah, it's great, I think, for the stability of the UK. And it gives him a chance to come back in and kind of finish what he wants to do. And certainly a lot on his plate as foreign secretary, given a 
outcome, what wars that are currently taking place. As you may have heard, Matt, there are some big elections that are going to be taking place around the world, including in the U.S., you mm -hmm. may have heard, next year. Indeed. So he will have a very busy agenda, I'm guessing, as foreign policy developments occur throughout. Oh, absolutely. A huge to-do list he's coming into. Does he have a position on Pillar 2, to your knowledge? I'm not 100% sure he'll be up to speed on it, but once he's watched the podcast, he'll be, he'll be on top I of his love game. It. If we can get David Cameron to listen or watch the podcast, that would be a big thrill. Absolutely. Maybe he can provide a, a, a note in the comments so that we know that he listened. <laughs> All right, so let's turn to, to Pillar 2 and the status of the UK rules. We're approaching the calendar year end of 2023 this is the third trip back to the Pillar 2 podcast, mm -hmm. to the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast, just on UK Pillar 2 rules. Remind listeners, like, how we got here, Matt, and where are we currently? Because we officially have enacted law now. Oh, absolutely. So as you, as you intimated there, it's been a long process. But that's because the UK started early. And so we had... We had a consultation on draft legislation. Off the back of that consultation, we had revised draft legislation, which, as you say now, is now enacted. So we have enacted rules that will apply from 1 January. We also have, on top of those enacted rules, a draft finance bill. And we've got a draft finance bill there that is to put changes through to the legislation that has been enacted because we enacted the legislation before we received the latest batch of administrative guidance. And also because you're taking the actual, the model rules as revised by the commentary, as revised, clarified by the administrative guidance, I, I don't envy the draftsman in right. pulling all that together. And so as a consequence of that, there are some areas where the UK legislation departs from the intended OECD outcome, but in the discussions that we have with the UK Treasury, the intention is that the UK rules fully align with the OECD. And so there's just some revisions as well to correct the, the UK drafting so it does align with the, the OECD rules. Yeah, we're, and we're going to get into a, a few of those mm -hmm. as the podcast progresses. But So we had the model rules, the commentary, we had February administrative mm -hmm. guidance, then we had July administrative guidance, and I think it was some of the July administrative guidance that created that kind of procedural challenge for the UK yep. drafters, as you described, who effectively, like, the paint wasn't even dry and they're already having to repaint some of the walls Absolutely. to be able to, <laughs> to get that incorporated. And then, of yep. course, we have additional administrative guidance that we're expecting potentially before the end of the year 2023, if not shortly thereafter. And spoiler alert, there will presumably continue to be additional mm -hmm. administrative guidance in perpetuity to, to answer um, additional questions. Mm -hmm. um, before we talk about that future administrative guidance, maybe just a, a quick summary of the UK rules, QDMTT, IR, UTPR, when will those be effective? Okay, sure. So Effective 1 Jan 2024 is both the UK QDMTT and the UK IR rules. We do have draft legislation for the UTPR, but we don't have an effective, a planned effective date for that yet. So the UK has said 2025 at the earliest. 
And for the UK, QDMTT specifically, um, has the UK decided whether they will allow local, whether it be local stat or the financial accounting system of the ultimate parent entity mm -hmm. as, what, as to what is the, the base for the QDMTT tax? So yeah, the UK is going with consistency in choosing the ultimate parent entity consolidated accounts as opposed to local GAAP. Yeah, which it, frankly was a, is a little bit surprising to me. Um, I kind of was was assuming that most, if not all, but I guess, of course, we're not going to have consistency across that. I thought many mm -hmm. jurisdictions would pick the, the QDMTT, and it's still early, so we'll see, but that they would pick the stat accounting for the implementing jurisdiction if for no other reason that it's just going to be easier for the tax administration to actually audit. Um, yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah, a clear business win here. We can use the same set of figures twice. Right, exactly. And I, so I think that's great for taxpayers that mm -hmm. are, as we're developing the systems, which we'll get into, I think that's positive. I think it does make it challenging for you know UK tax authorities, as I'm thinking about US multinationals, that mm -hmm. we will test the UK uh, taxing authorities' uh, knowledge about US mm -hmm. GAAP and some of the intricacies associated with you know whatever that financial accounting system is of the ultimate yeah. parent entity. Yeah, I think... Uh... Actually, on reflect, quick reflection, it's an immediate win for business. But when those questions come in, asking them to reconcile the differences, maybe we, we may wish fair, that we went for local gap. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so um, how will the UK now, because we're expecting additional administrative guidance mm -hmm. again, maybe before, maybe right before 2023. We've heard this before, these promises from the OECD. I know they're working very diligently. They have a very big task. Um, but how will future administrative guidance remind me? How does that work from a UK procedural mm -hmm. perspective as we get additional administrative guidance? So yeah, the, a great question, and the honest answer is I don't know, and we, we will have to wait and see when it comes out. And the reason for that is that my understanding is at an OECD level there is initial agreement that any changes that are coming in would be prospective and not retrospective because a number of jurisdictions can't implement legislation retrospectively. They can only implement things prospectively. So, so far, so good, so consistent. However, it depends on what your definition of retrospective is from your legislative practice. Right. Because in the UK, if you introduce some legislation before the end of an accounting period and say it applies to accounting periods ending after this date... That is not retrospective from a UK perspective. Okay. So it could well be that if we get that administrative guidance, say in February, it could get incorporated into the existing draft finance bill in the UK to have effect from 1 January. Um, I think to the extent we get, or, or when we get another batch of administrative guidance later in 2024, if it comes after the current draft finance bill has been enacted and it's towards the end of the year, I would expect it would be applied from 1 January 2025. So I think there's there's a couple of options on the table. Yeah, I can imagine this being pretty overwhelming for some of our taxpayers mm -hmm. and uh, international listeners. I will say that as a U.S. practitioner 
we're kind of used to this because the way the U.S. system works, as you're well aware, we'll get statutory language and then regulations mm -hmm. will come out later in the year that will go back and be effectively retroactive or back to the date maybe that initial statute came in. And the challenge that you know both practitioners as well as taxpayers have is like particularly as for public companies that have to do quarterly provisions, it is very possible that laws come out mm -hmm. and get enacted, you know, retroactive back to the year that could impact prior year or prior quarter estimates, for example, yep. and, and provisions. So just something to be mindful of. I know I think it's I'm sure it's overwhelming for, for some taxpayers and practitioners that are not used to this. Um, again, as a U.S. practitioner, it's kind of like, all right, now we're doing this on a global basis. Yep. And just being able to track those particular changes and then understanding, because to your point, some jurisdictions cannot do that, right? And some it's really going to depend on local mm -hmm. local legislature, the local legal pro legislative process to determine when that stuff gets incorporated. And in part capacity as well of the, them to actually draft the legislation. So whilst there is an admirable desire for consistency, as with a number of the areas that I think we might go and touch on, I just do not think we will get consistency on a global basis. Okay. So let's kind of move down from a, to a practical perspective, and then I want to unpack some of the you know, specific technical issues that we're seeing in the UK. Um, where, how are UK groups approaching Pillar 2? Um, are they really starting with the, the country by country safe harbor? Is it certainly what I'm seeing as we've had guests mm -hmm. here on the, the podcast and as I'm talking to taxpayers? What are you seeing from a UK perspective and what are some of the challenges associated with the safe harbors? Sure. So exactly that, the desire to look to utilize the safe harbors in terms of reducing the amount of administration required from a reporting perspective and ultimately the compliance. And I think as we're highlighting if you have to go into the detailed rules, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of differences, and it's a moving feast at the moment. So being in the safe harbour, sailing for that safe harbour, as it were, is what um, every single group I've spoken to is, is looking to do. But I think as, as you touched on, even though we have the safe harbours, they're still not absolutely clear as to how they apply and there's a level you need to get to to be able to qualify yeah, for the qualifying them. CBC. The qualifying CBC, which we had David Erdick on a couple podcasts ago where mm -hmm. we went through some of those details, certainly challenging. So there are a number of, I think, technical uncertainties, kind of maybe unique to the UK rules, given that I think their, your country by country rules may differ slightly mm -hmm. from the OECD. First one is related to entity classification. Tell us about, tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So the OECD paper that we have on safe harbours essentially refers to the entity classification as per the CBCR report, and you use that um, to, to run the various tests per jurisdiction. However, in the UK rules, the actual entity classification is driven by the main Pillar 2 rules. So you can get some differences potentially in relation to branches or companies that migrate partway through the year. All right, so there are still some, some broader uncertainties, um, which we'll see mm -hmm. may get dealt with um, um, in the administrative guidance, but kind of, I would say, unique or more specific to the, the transitional safe harbors mm -hmm. with the country-by-country -country report, for to purchase price adjustment pushdowns. Yeah. Yep, so there's a few issues actually around purchase price adjustments. One is how groups treat them for the purposes of the CBCR report. So some unpack them, 
on a jurisdictional basis and push them down. Some just leave them topside and their CBCR only reflects the, the elements that have been pushed down. Um, you then take the actual UK rules on the CBCR safe harbour and there's nothing that says you have to reverse purchase price adjustments. Say compared to Germany, and I've legislated that you, to the extent you have pushed down those purchase price adjustments, you need to reverse them and say you're starting to get inconsistency on approach to the CBCR safe harbours. And because Pillar 2 is essentially a bottom-up process, even though we started off probably two years ago saying it was top-down, right. those QDMTTs giving primary taxing rights to jurisdictions mean it's bottom-up. And the safe harbours are going to be used for the QDMTT, like um, exemptions from preparing their full QDMTT return. Right. So just having differences in approach per jurisdiction means that you're going to have to run multiple different sets of numbers. So to the extent the purchase price adjustments are picked up in the OECD guidance, then that's definitely going to be welcomed by business. Yeah. Um, and it's just a, a challenge with the nuances of this multi-jurisdictional mm -hmm. approach for, for taxpayers um, as well as practitioners. Um, all right. The second one is the fact that there is no per-establishment tax allocation rule. What, is, what does that mm -hmm. mean? So under the, the safe harbor rules, it just refers to taking the profit from the CBCR report and the tax from the jurisdiction from the qualifying financial statements. And again, to the extent that um, you're taking the tax from the financial statements, if you're using the local numbers, branches don't have financial accounts. Right. And the tax is paid by the head office because the branch isn't a legal entity. And so for accounting purposes, tax is booked at the head office, even if it's tax paid on the profit for a branch. And that is fully recognized in the main rules because there's a specific provision that takes the tax at the head office and pushes it down to the branch. There is no equivalent um, provision in the CBCR rules. And just reading the wording of the, the OECD rules, you can argue it both ways to either push the taxes down or leave them at the head office. And so there's some uncertainty there and I think a, a specific reallocation rule in the same way that we have it in the main rules would, would be helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the lessons of all of this is like the idea of the country by country truly being a safe harbor, which is just mm -hmm. like, oh, we're just going to use the country by country report mm -hmm. and there's really no work to do yeah. compared to having to do the full globe rules is certainly a misconception mm -hmm. that taxpayers need to be mindful of. And there's yeah. just work that needs to be done. And this PE issue is something that mm -hmm. I've raised on a number of podcasts. Um, and particularly just that it's very common that taxpayers don't have those separate financial statements. Yeah. Now, oftentimes if they're filing a tax return in a jurisdiction where they have that permanent establishment, they are using presumably something for that return. Mm -hmm. Maybe that becomes the basis for the financial statement, so to speak, of that permanent establishment, but absolutely requires some, some work. And then mm -hmm. the concern I think the taxpayers should have is that if that number gets inappropriately included into a jurisdiction, mm -hmm. Do we no longer have a qualifying country by country report? Yeah. Right. And that and the whether you have the qualifying report dependent on what you've done with the numbers in the safe harbor report is interesting. Because actually when you read the OECD paper, the, the reference to qualifying accounts is just to taking those um, consolidated accounts or your qualifying kind of bottom-up financial statements. There is nothing in that OECD paper that explicitly says that you have to take those numbers and put them in the right place on the CBCR <laughs> report. Um, 
the UK legislation goes a step further and says that you have to have prepared your CBCR report in accordance with the ultimate parent entities rules that import the OECD guidance, effectively saying you have to get it right. Which then brings in some interesting questions because, well, what if you footfall on, say, employee numbers? Employee numbers has absolutely no bearing right. on your safe harbor test, but like you're meant to get it in the right place if you're following the rules. So does getting the um, the employee numbers wrong mean you can't benefit from any of the safe harbors? That's something that we're currently discussing with the, the UK authorities. O only recently we don't have a... A response back yet but then even if you take the uh the profit numbers or the revenue numbers does getting those wrong for one jurisdiction mean that you can't benefit from the safe harbor for all jurisdictions right or, or should you just if you've got it wrong but you put the right number in and you still qualify should you still be able to qualify there's we, we are not short of questions. Right. And uh, one would hope that if you if a taxpayer screws up one jurisdiction, it wouldn't pollute the entire mm -hmm. um, country by country report or the ability to be able to rely on the safe harbors. And I certainly think that would yeah. that guide that explicit guidance would be helpful for taxpayers if the yeah. OECD is, is listening. All right. So let's maybe move away from some of the safe harbors because there are a mm -hmm. number of other challenges. Um, that I think have have risen up as part of some of these of the UK enactment. Um, let's start with partnerships. So, you know, mm -hmm. partnerships are legal entities that are commonly used as investment vehicles. And typically, as we think about partnerships, particularly from a US perspective, we think of tax flow through. So in other mm -hmm. words, the partnership itself is not subject to tax. It's the owners of the partnership. Um, but what are some of the challenges and is that consistent with UK rules and what mm -hmm. are some of the challenges for Pillar 2 in the context of partnerships? Sure. So I think the model rules themselves give the ability of a jurisdiction to decide whether or not that they would levy Pillar 2 tax on a partnership. And so that can be in the context of the IIR. Can a partnership be... Like it can absolutely be in like an intermediate parent entity, mm -hmm. but is it an intermediate parent entity that we subject to pillar two tax? And the UK enacted rules broadly say all partnerships um, set up in the UK can be subjected to UK pillar two tax, whether they're subject to UK corporate tax or not. Right? Whether that whether they're subject to UK corporate tax or not. Indeed, no partnerships themselves are subjected to UK corporate tax. Only where there are UK partners. Our previous draft rules had some kind of different outcomes based on whether you had UK partners or not. And okay. so you had an inconsistent approach to partnerships when legislated. That was changed such that. All UK partnerships, regardless of whether the partners are UK taxpayers or non-UK tax partners, payers even, are, um, are can be subject to pillar two taxes. A um, yeah, an IR whole co. Yeah, so so very I think important for for people that for mm -hmm. listeners to understand that if there is a UK partnership that is used as an investment vehicle, mm -hmm. even without UK partners, without being subject to sort of ordinary, if you will, UK mm -hmm. tax, that that could be an intermediate uh, holding, mm -hmm. intermediate parent entity that were that, you know, the mm -hmm. subsidiaries of that partnership could yeah. now be subject to the Pillar 2 rules. And also the UK QDMTT. Now, the UK QDMTT is interesting in that 
you read the HMRC guidance, which says all UK partnerships are subject to QDMTT, not just those that are ultimate parent entities or an intermediate parent entity subject to Pillar 2 tax, but you read the UK legislation, which says it is only um, UK partnerships that are ultimate parent entities or Holco subject to Pillar 2 that are in QDMTT. So we've raised that and we'll wait to see whether that has changed in the draft finance bill. Okay. All right, so let's move on. And this has gotten some some airtime over the last few months is the issue of deferred taxes related to branches mm-hmm. and CFCs of the UK and how those deferred taxes are pushed down. Um, maybe before we get into the specific issue, remind listeners, Matt, how do deferred taxes work just in general for Pillar 2? Why are we talking about deferred taxes? Mm-hmm. Back... Oh God, in the dawn of time, whenever we started the Pillar 2 journey, there were some rules in to deal with like Pillar 2 carry forwards and carry backs and business said that was complicated and we have a concept of of carrying forward assets where it will reduce tax in the future or there may be a tax liability in the future and we'll buck that and it's deferred tax. An accounting concept really tracking whether economically you'll be subject to tax for timing differences and so it was decided that we would follow that for pillar two purposes but cap it at 15 percent. so we we had straight off the bat an immediate kind of restriction around using deferred tax but as we've gone on uh, we're seeing discussion at the oecd level around whether we'll have more restrictions on the use of of deferred tax where i think Given it was recognised that deferred tax gives a true measure of economic taxation, restricting its usage in any way it potentially is creating double tax or excessive tax in the system. But I think there is a there is a general mistrust of deferred tax because it's it's not a tax you can see today. It's right. not a tax that's paid today. It's like it's dealing with the future. That's a perfect summary. So what is the issue with respect to branches then? And I think the common example mm-hmm. would be if you have a UK entity that owns a branch and then let's assume that branch has a loss, right? And then mm-hmm. that branch's loss can flow through, so to speak, into the UK and can be used to reduce your UK tax liability. Mm-hmm. How is that accounted for and what are, what's the, what are the issues associated with Pillar 2 with that fact pattern? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, as you say, if you've got a UK company with an overseas branch and you haven't made a branch exemption in the UK, you will pay UK tax on those branch profits. And to the extent that I've got a loss at the head office level, it will be a deferred tax asset that can be used against profits of the UK company or or the branch. And so if I have like a loss in year one at the head office, no branch profits, then I've got a loss carried forward, a deferred tax asset of 100. Okay, and you were saying, just to make sure that we're clear, yep. if we've got the loss at the, at the, head, office. At the head office and yep. no income at the, the PE. We've got no income at, at the PE, and so we, we have that loss that is capable of being used. And then we have year two, and let's switch it round. We have no profits at the head office level, and we have a profit of 100 in, in the branch. That 100 is brought into tax in the UK, but that loss brought forward is offset against those profits, so I pay no tax in the UK. 
overall economically, I haven't actually made any money right. in the UK company or the branch. But because I can't use that pillar to um, defer tax asset against the profits of the branch, I may have no profits and no tax consequently, but I will have a pillar to top at tax of, of 100. Sorry, that would be really excessive. A pillar to top at tax of 15 right. in respect of that. And it could work the opposite way if, if you had mm -hmm. profits or losses on the other side. But yeah. the point is, if you cannot push that down, mm -hmm. it does create this mm -hmm. opportunity for double taxation, yeah. despite the fact that there's really no mm -hmm. profits at all. And yeah. so it does, is the UK legislation, does, how does, it, does it address that specifically? So that's how this issue really came to light, that it was in debate at the OECD level, because we have the model rules that says, yep, you can use deferred tax assets and current tax and push them down to branches and CFCs and hybrid entities of some other categories. The UK legislation came along and said, no push down. Despite what was in the model rules. Despite what was in the model rules. We said, why no push down? And they said, well, we're just reflecting the current state of discussions at the inclusive framework. So to save us having to go and change it, we're just reflecting what we think the position is today. Even though it had not been reflected in any Even though guidance. it hadn't been reflected in administrative guidance. And we understand that this discussion is taking place at the OECD and it will ultimately be included in guidance. But there is discussion now around whether we can have some pushdown, not all pushdown, but in some circumstances, which I think just introduces complexity. Because our view, as we go back, is that deferred tax is just a true reflection of the economic realities that you will be subject to tax in the future. And the simplest thing to do is follow the model rules as they were without creating the, the potential for double taxation. And our understanding is the concern is driven by jurisdictional blending. And if I have a big pool of losses that I can't use and I move a, um, a CFC or a branch under a jurisdiction with those losses to to to, to offset loss that I couldn't otherwise use, um, to save me from a pillar two top-up tax liability. That's what they're trying to target. But I would say that it's a sledgehammer to crack a nut. And if that is your concern, well, you could go and write a specific targeting right. rule, just like they've done for targeting jurisdictional blending around like use of losses um, that aren't going to be otherwise used with like 3.2.7 in the model right. rules with intergroup financing right. arrangements. You can just write another targeted, targeted provision right. that isn't going to impact, frankly, a wide number of situations that we've identified today and undoubtedly a wider number of situations that we just haven't seen examples of yet. We'll see how that this shakes out. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's an expression that we use in the U.S. I don't know if this translates um, to British English, but if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> and, uh, that would be a fair a, a fair phrase to I use here. I don't view. feel like the commentary, the model rules and commentary were broken mm -hmm. in this respect. But I agree. Your point is, is, is understood on the, the potential for abuse and, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it, th that also creates complexity, but, you know, don't crack the nut with the sledgehammer, I think was your analogy. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. So a couple more other, a couple other ones um, that um, have, you know, created, I think, just not just in the UK, but what about mid-year transfers of, of entities? So if the UK is holding on to a subsidiary 
and you know earlier at some point during mm -hmm. the tax year they then transfer or sell you know that legal entity to let's say a u.s company mm -hmm. or some other company that may not be subject to the pillar two rules any clarity on how the iir works with respect to those mid-year transfers in the uk no <laughs> <laughs> but let me unpack that a yeah, little please. bit <laughs> since this is a podcast fair play so it's clear what you do with proportional ownership where you've got two shareholders owning an entity through the course of the year. You just allocate the tax based on the percentage ownership. So you think, shouldn't that really apply if I transfer the asset between two shareholders over the course of the year? Let's look at the days owned. But the model rules here refer to it being held at any point in time. And in that reorganisation example, I mean, you gave the example of transferring it from like um, a pillar two taxing country to a non-pillar two taxing one. But let's say I transfer it from pillar two taxing Holco one to pillar two taxing Holco two. You have the potential with the rule that's drafted to tax all those profits of your low tax entity twice or transfer it to another entity, tax them three times. And so it feels that the right answer and the right interpretation of the rule should be a proportional rule based on time owned. And, with the UK legislation, you can read the UK legislation that way. It's not entirely clear. So again, it's an area where we said, like, could we have some consistency here? And it would seem that the appropriate approach is to tax it based on time ownership. All right. Well, those are just you know a few examples, um, and you know we're going to see you know as we get additional administrative guidance, how that gets incorporated, whether some of these issues may be covered, both with respect to the safe harbor, mm -hmm. maybe not. Um, what what is your view? Should we should UK taxpayers and really multinational taxpayers expect um, in the UK for 2024 as we look into next year? Um, as you look into your crystal ball, mm -hmm. what should taxpayers be mindful of that are operating in the UK with respect to Pillar 2? So I think it's just tracking that, that legislative change that we mentioned and understanding whether the administrative guidance that's coming out in 2024 will be applied retrospectively from a time and perspective from 1 yeah. January or, or whether it's for 25 onwards. And we've touched on it before, it's making sure you benefit from being in those safe harbours gives you gives you the maximum certainty whilst we have a, a period of like ongoing change in the rules. But I think that ongoing change in the rules, as I said, we have a draft finance bill now. Ultimately, that will get enacted in May or June. I absolutely, next time I'm back, if it's after then, I think we'll be talking about what is in the current draft finance bill to change the rules that change the rules that change the rules. I don't know whether I've done that enough right. times, but that, that's kind of an example of where I think we're going. Right. And then the other takeaway that I have from, from this conversation is taxpayers should not take for granted the ability and the work that is needed to, to take advantage of the country-by-country country mm -hmm. safe harbors. There is, is certainly um, some, some significant work to be done to yeah. make sure that there is a qualifying country-by-country. Country. I would encourage listeners to listen to the prior podcast, kind of breaking that down, but um, not just for UK, for those operating in the UK, but yeah. from elsewhere, there is some significant work to make sure that uh, reports are qualifying. Mm -hmm. It's certainly something that I think that taxing authorities and auditors are going to be answering questions, given that country-by-country country reports you know, had historically not mm -hmm. um, been related to specific tax liabilities. 
So, all right. Well, Matt, always insightful, interesting talking to you. Very dynamic area here in the UK. And as we get into additional changes, look forward to having you on a future episode. Yeah, love to be back. Thanks, Doug. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Matt Ryan, International Tax Partner and Pillar 2 Leader with PwC in the UK. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.